Let's do the Torah tea today, of course, is before Purim. Let's talk a little bit about Purim, but uh, I'm a little bit under the weather today. I don't know. It's just uh, on, on penicillin. But, uh, oh, no. But, uh, so let me get some input. So I'm not talk so much today. Let's just uh, have a, maybe more of, a, of an open discussion. I know that Purim is uh, very, uh, I guess, inspiring, and we've just heard... Uh, that people see miracles in their own lives and oh, yes. um, things that uh, absolutely um, aren't expected, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, they, they happen, and it's mm-hmm. like uh, really, um, really amazing. But one of the things that really uh, people don't realize that um, the two things that um, stand out. Well, we we the Jewish people unfortunately have a history of having a lot of people wanting to do uh, bad to us. I mean, we've had a, throughout our history uh, people wished us well. It's not like we have to go back in history. I mean, today, you know, there's millions of people which hate the Jews, you know, the anti-Semites and of all stripes and all, sha- all shapes. Uh, and then Jewish people suffered uh, in the last generation suffered like a like a Hitler, like a Yamak like and through, before him and throughout the history. And yet, somehow, Haman with Akashverosh is considered to be a um, a greater enemy than anybody else. I mean, how uh, how, how do we explain that? It seems like. The story of, 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 of the Megillah, of uh, Haman, what he wanted to do, uh, is something unique more than have ever anything else that happened in history. Okay. Okay. Good. Now you see, there is there is something uh, there's something interesting. He says. So the Megillah starts off with what? What is the the starting off of the Megillah? That that, that basically Achashverosh controlled that he was king over uh, the most of the world. He was in the uh, in the Talmud. It says that there were several people that were Moshe Bikipa. Moshe Bikipa means they dominated the entire dome, the entire world, and one of them was Achashverosh. I mean, today. You have different countries, and some countries are good to the Jews, some countries are bad to the Jews. Uh, there's no one dominating leader that dominates the whole world. Matter of fact, the Talmud says that God has done a, uh, a favor to the Jews, so to speak, that he scattered them all over the different countries, so that if there is sometimes a trouble that takes place in a certain country, then the people that live in the other country at least will um, escape. And, uh, and so we've seen the, the, um, the case by Haman over there was that he was dominating basically the whole world and uh, Akashverosh was dominating the whole world. And therefore Haman uh, wanted to, what he wanted to do, he basically wanted to annihilate all the Jewish people 
from the entire world. That was his plan that he devised, that he wanted to do. He wanted to just wipe out all of them. Now, I know, of course, we talk, think about the Holocaust, but even in, in, in Yamach and Hitler's plan, it was basically the Jews of Europe. He didn't think that he would go after the Jews in some of the other countries, like the United States and other places. He didn't think that he would reach that. His plan wasn't that. Uh, Hashem, we stopped it, but the idea was also different than all other things. How, how did Haman want to achieve his goal? How did he want to achieve this? And um, most of the time when a person, when a king is fighting and makes a war, so what he does is he sets out his armies, sets out his armies to go and fight. Now, of course, whenever there's an army there, the armies sometimes are successful. It takes time. It doesn't, doesn't happen right away. Every time when you have to conquer a place, a land, a people, it takes time. It took, God forbid, what they were doing, you know, the, uh, the Germans took a long time for them to try to get together the, as many Jews as they can. But Haman devised another kind of a plan. Haman's plan was that they sent out letters to all the world, to the entire world. There's going to be no army here that's going to fight. It's not Haman or the king is going to send an army. It's going to be neighbor against neighbor. He says he's going to authorize that all the different nationalities, the different countries, the different community, with the different customs, whether you're Muslim, whether, you know, just uh, it doesn't make a difference what you are. He said just seek out the Jews in your neighborhood and destroy them. Just seek out, telling every community, wherever you are, that there is a decree from the king to annihilate and to get rid, dispose of the Jews. There'll be no more Jewish problem. And who's to do that? Not the army. Neighbor against neighbor. And that's why he said, it'll all happen in one day. What is that? You see, it says, Yom Echad. He says, we'll destroy them all in one day. In one day, we'll get rid of all the Jews. How are we going to do that? Because the neighbors are going to do the job for Allah. Unfortunately, we saw, which also happened in, in, in Europe, in which the Ukrainians and the Poles, as you know, maybe you're following up a little bit on the news, it's been in the headlines later on, in, uh, in Poland they try to make a pass a law that it would be a crime, it would be a crime to uh, talk about the Holocaust or sort of to blame the Poles, the Polish people, for the atrocities that took place uh, against the Jewish people. I mean, Israel has been, I'm not sure exactly what, how it played out, but it was, they were very, very upset with, with Poland, and we all know that some of the Poles and some of the Ukrainians and some of the Lithuanians and some of the various different people where the Germans had their uh, final plan uh, against the Jews, uh, the cooperation of the local 
and the savagery and the barbaric uh, behavior of some of the neighbors was actually a lot worse than the Germans themselves. I mean, in some instances, in most instances, a lot of instances, and again, I'm not here to go through the history now, but we know that it was a very, very, uh, they, they, they participated uh, willingly and knowingly, and they were leading. Uh, and what they did was, later on, they took over the Jewish homes, the Jewish businesses, and they enriched themselves, and they became, you know, until recently, we know, with the, some of the banks that were at that time, and they, 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 they annexed, they took away, they, 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 they robbed, they looted all the Jewish uh, possessions, and they enriched themselves in that. Um, so they were more than happy, a lot of them were more than happy to, um, to do bad, to do harm to the Jew. Um, now, of course, you know, we, all, we, uh, we highlight that there were some brave, exceptional, outstanding Gentiles who actually risked their lives, uh, in many cases, to save Jews. I mean, that's too, too. But unfortunately, that was the minority of cases. That was far and few in between. But the people on the street, uh, the other, they had a... Uh, a hatred, no less than the uh, than the Germans, the people, the host uh, nations that were the Germans occupied. Their hatred against the Jews were uh, strong, and they did terrible things. So this was how Haman's plan. So, in essence, it turns out that actually. This was maybe the worst problem the Jewish people experienced throughout our history. I just have a question. Sure. What percentage of, were Jews of the world's population back then? Well, I think, what are we, what are we now? We're like a half a percent? Well, how much are we now of the world population? Uh, point like something? 13 what? million people altogether. Uh, and so, we were, we were, I mean, again, the, the difference, we were probably still about, uh, we were about 1% maybe. Uh, I don't know that, you know, again, I'm not sure. I'm just giving you an answer. Maybe so it was, it was a very, very small percentage. Because most of the, they came from, from Israel right. to... Mm-hmm. to to Persia. They came with the Gullus. Otherwise, right. why were they really living there? What do you mean, all were by, by, by Persia? No, yeah, absolutely. So what, what, are you, what is the point? No, I'm saying, so how many people could be in the land of Israel? Most majority lived. So why, why are we talking how many people were in Israel? You're asking how many people were in Israel then? No. no could you how many Jewish people? You said that the, the, the whole, this, this decree went out to the whole world. Whatever so the was then, well, yeah, right. So his empire, which was supposed, we're, we're talking about we're talking about twenty five hundred years ago, like right. twenty four hundred years ago. It's um, again, I'm not sure what the population was then, but his plan was not send an army. His plan was to have all the people in their country, the community, so they're they'll kill their own people, they'll kill their neighbors, and they were that was become the law of the country. Uh, again, I'm not sure exactly what the, what the, what the percentage was, but was uh, the problem was not how many, but it was going to affect all of our people. The and other it, thing... It yeah. must be also that the Jews lived everywhere because the, the letter went out to all 127 countries. 
Adum so the Jews must have been really like dispersed. Now, yes, absolutely. Now, it's it's true what you said before that throughout the Jewish people had a uh, a population in Israel throughout, with the exception, with the exception, there was the exile. See, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two sections. There was the kingdom of the ten tribes. And then there was the kingdom of Yehuda, of Judah. So Yehuda and Jerusalem, they were sort of the center for uh, Yehuda and Yemen. And then we had the other ten tribes. Now the ten tribes were exiled some 11 years before the Yehuda. But at that time, after the exile of the 12 tribes, and after the exile of the Yehuda, and, the, and, and the, the way they used to do it in those days is they they didn't just conquer you, they actually moved the populations around, so they got all the Jews out of there, that's why they exiled them, and they put them into mainly into Persia and to Babylonia, Iraq and, and Persia, those were the main centers where the Jewish people found themselves, and um, um, life, you know, itself, before Haman, uh, life was pretty good for the Jewish people in, 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 in Persia and Babylonia, and uh, uh, they were, um, they had their rights, uh, they were integrated, part of the uh, general population. Um, they were treated uh, fairly basically, and they had all privileges, and life was pretty good for them. As a matter of fact, when there was a movement to uh, allow for Jews to go back, there wasn't that many mm-hmm. Jews that wanted to go back. I mean, similar. I mean, if you have a lot of people have an opportunity to go to Israel today, okay, so the Mashiach is not here, and we don't have a, a base Hamikdash, or we don't have the uh, what it takes to become an own government in the sense of a, of a uh, you know a Torah according to the Torah government and everything the way in, in Israel. But yet, you know, there's a lot of people that have an opportunity to go to Israel if they wanted to live, to be in the Holy Land. And as we know, how much all the great uh, rabbis, Sadiqim, Tanoim, Amiroim, they all were yearning to live in Eretz Israel, and yet people have an opportunity. And they don't go to Eretz Israel. Why? Because they like it, you know. They like their life, they're comfortable here, they don't find the need. Uh, they don't want to go to Eretz Israel. Now, of course, um, there's various different reasons and there's various different uh, situations today. Um, life in Israel today, as you know, uh, if you read, you see, it's not exactly a pure and holy, you know, the government over there, read all the uh, stuff, it's not exactly, but still, it's the uh, Jewish homeland, is the place where we say, and we're looking forward to go back to Zion, to go back to Jerusalem. But that's a side discussion. The, the, the point here is that at that time, the Jewish people, when they were exiled to Persia and to Babylonia, they had a seemingly a good life. And, and you know, King Ahasuerus, you know, when we see by the party, he actually invited everybody and he told the party told the people to accommodate so that they should give whatever the people want. Uh, 
it even says, you know, they kosher wine. We have kosher wine. You want uh, kosher food? We have kosher food. We want everything. You know, they, they come and enjoy. It didn't discriminate. The Jews felt, you know, they felt very good. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the Jewish people fell into the trap and they felt very good. They felt safe. accepted. Safe. They felt safe and they felt yeah. accepted. They Important. felt that they were part now and they're okay. Actually, the Rebbe explains <laughs> in a talk, he says that the people really enjoyed it. The, the, the fact that they enjoyed it so much uh, showed that they sort of gave up their I mean, their pride, the, who they are, and there's two ways that the Jew can be targeted, basically. One is a physical, and the other one is a spiritual. Uh, while many times the enemies target us in a physical way, they want to restrict us, limit us, all kinds of decrees, um, and try to harm us physically, um, sometimes they try to harm us on a spiritual level, which they actually open up their arms to us. Um, they say, you know, you're welcome, you're part. And, I mean, in a, in, a, in a way, we have today's situation is also where um, the um, society is welcoming to the Jew, uh, and you can be part of everything. And, and, uh, the Jewish people, the fact that they gave up at that particular time because they were given so the opportunity, uh, they were actually um, sort of blending in and they lost their special feeling that they are different, that they're Jewish, that they're the chosen people. And that enjoyment of it um, is, 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 is really what did them in. And um, in other commentaries explained, the, the, the verse says, Kirtzon ish ish to do like the will of every person, basically. So there's a connotation from some of the commentaries that it was actually a wild party, you know. It was a, mm-hmm. a, it was a promiscuous party. It wasn't just it was a uh, it wasn't just a party. Too hot, sorry. That's okay. I, I just okay. was getting out of the way, so it will yeah? spread okay. to others. Uh, so uh, it was kind of a. Everybody do whatever you want, you know. It was like one of those uh, college uh, parties, um, you know. It was like uh, it was, and, and and this was also part of a a devised um, a devised technique to get them to lose any sense of uh, specialty, of any sense of dignity, of any sense of uh, special values for themselves. And this was part of the uh, of the plan. But yet, on a on the surface level, it seems uh, you know that it's great. But we know now that unfortunately that we may be doing to ourselves what the goyim, uh, the people that wanted to kill us, didn't do. I mean, we may just self-destruct from the inside if we don't uh, sort of take action and try to reverse the trend of more and more people leaving uh, the, or not finding any interest or the need for Yiddishkeit and we'll self-destruct from the inside because uh, we won't know anymore what it means or what it is to be Jewish. I mean, that's the work that uh, 
that we're all trying to do is to keep our faith and to keep our religion and to keep our connection to Hashem and to see the miracles. But uh, and also, you know, we talked about historically throughout the ages, um, um, sometimes places that were good to the Jews on the physical level but were very bad for them on the spiritual level, and they lost their identity. And um, so there has to be, I guess, you know, a balance. But anyways, back to the story over here, the Jewish people lived in a pretty good, uh, as far as the... Uh, neighbors as far as the host nations where they lived. They were pretty uh, good, they were invited to parties, and they were not discriminated. Everything was going well with them, good for them. Now, the real, the other question is that we want to look on it, you know, again, I'm going to open up if anyone has any ideas I'd like to hear. Uh, the other thing is, which is very um, interesting, which stands out, is the, how, the, how brave Mordechai was, because you have to uh, realize that let me try to measure how we would do in a situation like that. Now, what was the problem? The problem is that uh, Haman was upgraded. He became second to the king. And now the king made a decree that everybody must bow to Haman. Now, this wasn't particularly seems for Haman. It seems that it goes together with the this was the tradition. If somebody was uh, second became second to the king, then the tradition was that when his horse came by everybody prostrated themselves they bowed down. That was sort of the tradition. That was the honor they gave to the second in command. So then uh, Mordechai, uh, he refused to bow down because, as it's brought down, that he had an idol on him, and when if you bowed to him, it wasn't just a matter of bowing to out of respect, which is sometimes okay if you respect somebody, but he may turn it into an idol worship. And the question really becomes, why did Mordechai need to start up and cause a ruckus and endanger himself and everybody else because of his behavior? If you don't want to bow down, so go the other way. No, you know, but he, it seems like that he would, he was sitting in the gate of the king and he was there. It seems like that Mordechai was a pretty high up up there also in the uh, in the government. Matter of fact, the word the Mordechai Yoshev Bishar Hamelech is very similar to what we find Loit Yoshev, or where we find that they were actually a judge. He must have been a sort of a judge. You know, Mordechai was a very um, uh, a very intelligent and a very learned, and he was sitting there in judgment in the court of the king. And Mordechai, okay, so Haman became second. So he had to sort of point it out and say, that he would not, not bow. So now the question really becomes, it seemed like it was a little bit of an interpersonal uh, sort of uh, competition over there between Mordechai and Haman, you know, 
Mordechai Heyman was also in the in the king's um, uh, court, and he was sort promoted. of what <laughs> promoted, promoted, and he learned, and uh, Mordechai was also there. And uh, okay, so let's say that Haman was very upset. So yeah, so so why did he, why did Haman all of a sudden let out all of his anger? He says, not only they told him, he says, they told him the people of Mordechai. So he says, I know who Mordechai's people is, but he no longer wants to just hurt Mordechai. Now he wants to hurt all the Jewish people. Because he says, because they told him the people of Mordechai. And I guess here and deep down you can see the core and uh, what, in the essence, at the end of the day, why we're so hated by by everybody. Uh, not by everybody, meaning even people sometimes, like the Jewish people that were in Germany, for example, they were part of this society, how all of a sudden in one night everything changed. We seem to be, like in the United States, we seem to be um, feeling very uh, comfortable with our situation, but the truth of the matter is that if you push sometimes the people, and we see it by some of the government, some of the press, the presidents and other we can see that beyond, over the nice talk that goes on the surface, there is deep down, there is something, a deep-rooted something. They told them to Mordechai's people. You, know, you see it in different different situations. I saw it, for example, and I'm not expecting everybody to agree with me, but I saw it, for example, when they put away this Rubashkin for 27 years for his crime. I saw that underlying anti-Semitism that is even though everything is the court it's the system, it's the bank everything was dressed up so nicely and you know, you can't argue that but deep underneath that I saw that's the way I interpret I saw, you know, that those Jews, those double loyalties you know, they're not really really Americans you know, if it comes to Israel uh, you know, they they make a joke that in the uh, Knesset there was once a debate uh, going on. How do we improve our situation? You know, things are so difficult in Israel. How do we improve it? So one of the uh, members of the Knesset comes up with an idea. He says, look, why don't we do what Japan does, what Japan did. He says, Japan started up with the United States and then the United States devastated them and then they rebuilt them. So maybe we start up, we start a war against the United States, and uh, and then they'll beat us, and then they'll have to rebuild us. So another guy says, "But he says, what about if we win?" <laughs> you know, they, you know. He says, you know, "There is an underlying you know, that stubbornness that in face that the Jewish." community as a whole has 
withstood throughout the, the, the years, and that non-yielding, and that uh, not conforming, and still staying strong, and that's why we're here today. If we didn't have something in us which was so strong, how, how are we here today? We wouldn't have an explanation. How did we survive everything? Something in us, so the outside can sometimes see better about us than we see about ourselves. They believe in us and they know who we are even more than we know about ourselves. Haman recognized that, that Mordechai it wasn't just a something, the fact that Mordechai taking a stand and he's not listening to the king and he's not bowing down to him it's not something which is just an individual which he decided that he's going to do but it's something about the people it's something what they have in their DNA so he says that level of connection to something higher than just the government, the community the, 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 the king will never be uh, taken away from them unless we annihilate them. That's why Gidduloi as Am Mordechai. And Mordechai himself, that's why Mordechai, Mordechai could not uh, use any calculations. And, uh, we know also and now in history, we know also in history. Huh? I mean, let him bow to him and say, fine. Yeah, but now in history, we know that actually giving in works only temporarily. It doesn't really work when you, the appeasement policy or trying to, I actually, as I noticed, not to, I actually think that when you're, people are finally starting to talk to the Palestinians, to Abbas, and really telling them a straight talk, the way it is, you know, instead of mm. always accommodating, we might actually get some some movement, we might actually get some peace. <laughs> you know, we may, we may, uh, yeah, we may, who knows? We may actually uh, make, I'm not sure, it's good or bad, I'm not going to involve them here and on the bottom, but I'm just saying you can see that always trying to bow, bow representing, to give in or to go, is actually works against you. At the end of the day, it's a very short lived um, remedy. It's not going to carry through. Uh, people who are principled, people who are standing for uh, what they believe in, um, while Mordechai seemed to get into trouble, he seemed to take on a, a battle that he could not win, seemed to get all of his people in trouble. But at the end of the day, you see that it was only that stand that strong. Uh, stand and the non-yielding that actually brought about the victory then we know that we mean business over here that we're dealing here with the people who are strong and who are not going to yield and this was something that the Rebbe always uh, talked about he wanted Jews to be proud of the Yiddishkeit he wanted us to demonstrate this we put the menorahs outside you know a lot of people say it's a Goisha country, you know, do your religion, you know, don't don't push it in everybody's face, don't, you know, hide it, you know, don't, uh, don't, you know, expect 
that they should treat you, you know, still be happy with whatever you get and don't don't ruffle any feathers, don't rock the boat, just let things go as they go. But the Rebbe's opinion was that, same thing about Israel, the Rebbe's opinion was that as long as the Israelis try to hide and show uh, that we're weak and that we're not uh, strong, then at the end of the day, you're not going to succeed that way because the people are not going to respect you and they're not going to help you really in the time of need. It's only when you are strong and you speak the truth and you tell the people as it is. Again, it has to be gently. It has to be though you don't talk, you don't talk bad, you don't antagonize, you don't get them angry, you don't, you're not trying to do that. But you still do what you got to do. And um, it's like unbelievable when you read some of the, you know, some of the Goetia response. Uh, as for example, the representative, Nikki Haley, the representative to the UN, she she says it to them as it is. You know, she says I'm, that. I loved that. That you saw that piece. You yeah, know, they were talking you know. about it. I didn't see and, it. Uh, That's great. So, you know, Jerusalem has always been the capital of, of Israel. And there were no Palestinian people. There was Jordan. I mean, let's just get the history straight over here. Let's just get the facts straight before we start going on and just saying what you want to say. Yes, you know, if you repeat a lie enough time, then you start believing it. This is part, actually, of the, uh, I guess, the mentality of the, the Palestinians and some of their Arab uh, supporters is to keep on repeating the lie so many times that it's Palestine and Palestine, but still they believe it. And everybody else believes it. It's just like they believe a lot of fanatical things, like they believe that the Mossad was behind the Twin Towers and that Israel goes and kills children. And, I don't you know, think they believe it. I think they believe it. They believe it. They say it. And it becomes people, true. They're they true. Really, they, that becomes the their reality. They tell it yeah. to believe it. They really believe it. That becomes, you Listen, told us I sometimes. Ju- I have Jewish friends that believe it. That's right. Yeah. You tell us that when you go to place, they really believe what they say, yeah. but that's not really the way to, um, you know, to win people over on your side is by sort of just trying to show them um, uh, appeasement, you know, appeasement policy. You tell them with Chamberlain, with uh, with Hitler, with what happened through the appeasement that that didn't work. No, so basically, is that what Mordechai knew when he said, "I'm not going to give in"? Okay, Mordechai did, at this point, it was a matter of his stance for Yiddishkeit. This wasn't a, if it was a personal issue, I don't believe then if it was a personal issue that he had, he would have, uh, he would have bowed. But it was his, his whole religion, his whole history, this whole commitment to Hashem, to everything that was at stake over here. You know, sometimes they ask, you know, like, you know the, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and some of the other great people living in a very difficult time, sometimes they risk their life and uh, to continue doing the work for Yiddishkeit. And people ask the question, are you even permitted to risk your life for that? But 
because halakhically it may be the problem, but but the point is that out that the the Jewish people uh, when they were at Mount Sinai at that time, and they all accepted. We all know the famous Naseh Nishma that they said we will do, and then we will listen. So they were sort of ready to accept Hashem. And um, but it also says that they were standing underneath the mountain. So what does it mean underneath the mountain? So Rashi brings it down, and it's also from the sages. They tell us that God lifted up the mountain from the ground. And he put it, and he put it over their heads. And he said, he said, if you accept the Torah, good. If you don't accept the Torah, then I'll drop the mountain right on top of you. So they basically had no choice, and they had to accept it. Hasidic interpretation says, hey, wait a minute. It must mean more than that. It's just you know. Or of of what value is that? If you, you know, uh, they say, "Oh, we'll do." Except, of course, you know, if you're gonna kill me, I'm gonna do whatever you want. So, what does that mean? The Hasidic interpretation is that mountain is a mountain of love. The Jewish people felt uh, at that point like so they were mesmerized by all the the, the thunder and the lightning and. Moshe Rabbeinu and the mountain and the voices and the noise and everything else. And they felt in their hearts such a love and such a, a yearning and such a connection to Hashem. That was the mountain upon them, which means it was, they really had no, no, uh, no other desires. They had nothing else in their mind. You know, it's like you go into a speaker and he gets you fired up and get all excited, the rabbi gives a, a great sermon, something which gets you inspired. inspired. And then you go home. <laughs> and then you go home. <laughs> and then you go home and you start saying, hey, should I actually give such a donation? Like, uh, maybe, you know, uh, no, let's split it and do a little less, you know, uh, lose that enthusiasm and uh, you cool off, you know. And, uh, the Jewish people being there, were with that love, so they didn't. Now, it was considered when it came to Achshverosh. Yes, they had a problem, but they could have gotten out of the problem. They could have converted. They could have said, "Okay, we're not Jewish anymore." Then they wouldn't be bothered. They didn't kill them. They killed them only because they were Jews. Because they believed. Was that a choice by Hellman's The same shyness. Yeah, they didn't have to. Uh, it was, uh, they could have, they could have left and they could have uh, saved themselves. It was considered to be more internally. It wasn't an external force that was just upon them. I guess they had time to review it. They lived for a while, uh, assimilated, and now they had to make sort of a internal accounting. You know, it's like when you're young and you start out, you don't think too much, you know, you just, all the excitement of life, you want to make a good life for yourself, you want to make a lot of money, you want to make a lot of fun, you want to, you're ambitious and you have, you know, the plans. But after you've had a lot of your, 
desires fulfilled or failed. Uh, your expectations, you know, you're expected that, you know, uh, your marriage is going to be who knows what. You expected that you're going to be financially sound. You expected that you're going to uh, be uh, feeling always good. You know, you had a lot of expectations. And then you had, you had a lot of times to sort of, and then you can start saying to yourself, well, you know, what's really important in life? What's really important to me? Uh, what am I really, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not uh, going to achieve what I, my dreams fully anyways. Uh, how do I know that? Because the Talmud says if you want, one who has 200 always wants 400. And if you have 400, you want 800. And if you have 800, you, want, you always want twice as much. So that's why it says a person always dies and never has half of his desires fulfilled. Why? Because he always wants twice as much than he has. So, so you realize that some of the things that you expected that you wanted, you're not going to get it anyways. And then you realize, well, really I actually have a lot more than I think that I have. I really have my spirituality, I really have my neshama, and I really have so much good for me that the other things don't really matter so much anymore. So, um, that's why the Purim, after they've experienced being in the other country already, and after they've uh, experienced a good life, and after they were part of the society, and then they finally realized, hey, I thought these were my friends. You know, can you imagine the disappointments? You read some of the writings of people who were high up there, like in Germany, they were bankers, and they were really part in the highest echelons of the government and all of a sudden they became you're Jewish and you're not so here the Jewish people the disappointment was so deep and so profound that it touched them they finally said to themselves hey you know what why are we going looking for other places we have it here we have to connect to Hashem that's who we are why look run after chase after everything else when we have it right here we don't have to go anywhere we have it we have to find Hashem where we are and the Jews really did it with their feeling they accepted upon themselves willingly now and they said yeah you know what Hashem you were right all along we made mistakes we thought we were blinded we were misguided we were uh, influenced by the society environment we didn't know what was important we didn't realize how special we are we didn't realize what our function is and but now that we do realize this is what we want to do and that gave them the opportunity i guess to when you're saying how is this more they were threatened their lives but it wasn't just threatened it was threatened by people that they trusted already that these are people that they become those are my friends how could my friend do this to me? How could they? And then you realized, you know what? Those are not really your friends. I like to tell you, I had a, somebody actually used to live in Sharon, and he he was a very successful um, uh, sales. He used to sell stocks and bonds and everything else, and uh, made a lot, a lot of money for himself and for the company mostly. You know, he sold so a lot of money. He was on a pedestal and everything else. Then he got sick. And 
And nobody called and nobody came. And nobody, he says to me, he says, we're all my friends. He says, he says, he finally realized, hey, you know what? Those guys aren't really my friends, you know? You know, as long as I make the money. <laughs> I meant to them, but as soon as I, I'm in the hospital and I'm of no value, of no uh, use to them, then forget it. So he says, it's you or the people, you know, the people that go to shul, the daven, that believe in Hashem, that get together. Those are the people that are that remain. So they had finally figured out. It took a long, it took a, a shake-up call, sort of that annihilation, saying, hey, you know what? As much as we want to blend in, as much as we think we can be part, as much as we think that we can drop our Yiddishkeit, we can think, you know, we're, I'm not Jewish anymore. I'm going to be like the people around me. You just can't. It's not going to work. And you come through your own uh, or success, uh, conviction. You come around and you say, look, Nasev and Nishma, what I said then, while I had that great love, Actually, now after all my experience, I actually believe that that is actually true because right now I feel the same way. I feel the same way that I feel that connection. The only thing is that we hope that we can transmit this idea as people are trying to transmit to us, to our younger generations, so they don't have to go through the same sort of hesitations even though that's kind of uh, difficult, but they shouldn't go through the same questioning and the same uncertainty. And sometimes it just seems so wrong, you know, when I argue sometimes with a teenager and they tell you how wrong you are. And they think they really know it, but you have experience. And I've been there, I've known that I thought just like you did, you know, some years ago I did. And it's not like, you know, that I'm smarter than you are, but I just have the experience and I know what you are thinking, you're, you're going to change the world and everything is going to be so good and everybody's going to be together and there's no differences and it's just going to be a world of harmony and everything else, you know, and we don't have to protect ourselves, you know, that, that doesn't work, unfortunately. But sometimes too late when they can't bring back some of the mistakes that you make in life, but sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but a person can always sort of, uh, you know, start again, and that's the miracle of porn, you know. But you know what, I, I, I yeah? see that this um, generation was very unique in that they were the generation that had lost the first Beit HaMikdash. Mordechai was one of the elders in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, so they just experienced, like the giving of the Torah, they experienced godliness and they felt it, and they saw it in the base. It wasn't like five generations away. It was a like I, I say, interesting enough, I'm a first-generation American. We a little bit experienced that our parents were hogas. My children, it's like nothing. It's like not even that many generations away. So this generation was unique because it tasted and saw and felt. So the parents can, can say to the children, you know, I saw... The base of Yiddish. And then 70 years later, it's, it's only in between, the second base of the Holy Temple was rebuilt. So it was like, I think, a very unique um, generation because they experienced, they felt, they saw, and then they were able to repent yeah, and be able to very, be very worthy of bringing back the second base of Yiddish. So And because saying that, we are also the generation that our parents, or we know people that are Holocaust survivors who actually experienced the Holocaust. So we have to uh, 
carry the message very strongly mm-hmm. to the next generation because in a generation from now they're going to start questioning whether there was a Holocaust or not, mm-hmm. and oh, the, the so denial that... Uh, no, but you know what, I think about that and a lot. So like, gonna, and at that time, now there is still, now there's still evidence. Out but there's still evidence. There are 